Hey folks, you're listening to Alpha Flight Support Group on the FYIZ podcast feed. Now, if you're asking what the hell is Alpha Flight, Alpha Flight uh, was a Canadian superhero group created by writer Chris Claremont and artist John Byrne in the pages of the X-Men back in 1979. That was then spun off into its own series, just called Alpha Flight, in 1983. When I was 10 or 11, I was drawn to those books for various reasons that I guess I'll be exploring on this podcast with interesting guests, uh, people I know who also uh, have an interest in Alpha Flight. So right now, I've announced this is a very niche thing. If that sounds interesting to you, thank you for sticking around. If not, I'll understand if you jump off. Okay, well, I think the normies have left. Just in case anyone remains who doesn't know who Alpha Flight is, here is a quick roll call before I get to our guest. Alpha Flight was led by a man named James McDonald Hudson, who had the superhero name Weapon Alpha, then Vindicator, and then Guardian, and uh, then he died. And uh, his power was basically that he just had a power suit that let him fly and shoot blasts. Uh, Also on the team and flying and shooting blasts were fraternal twins, North Star and Aurora, who did not have power suits, but were mutants. But still, flying and shooting blasts was the order of the day. Next up, I guess I'll mention Snowbird. She was uh, an Inuit demigoddess who could transform into animals associated with Canada. Enough said. And then we have a character known as Shaman, who was uh, a skilled doctor and medicine man and sorcerer named Michael Two Youngman, who had a sort of a pouch that he could reach into and, and pull all kinds of crazy magical stuff out of. We also had a character named Marina, who was a fish woman, and she was sometimes very scary. Also kind of on the team and kind of not was a woman named Heather McNeil, who was James Hudson's wife. And after he died, she put on his old suit and went by the name Vindicator and then the name Guardian. Let's see who else. Oh, who could forget? Beloved Puck, the former bouncer and acrobat uh, who was able to use his small size in a fight. And I believe maybe he just had like a lot of stamina. Last but not least, Sasquatch, uh, a man who could turn into a big hairy orange monster. So that's the team. And yeah, you're about to meet my friend, podcaster and comedian, Michael Furr, who's going to help me sort out, you know, which of these characters had something special. So let's get to it. Alpha Flight. Hi, I'm John. Uh, welcome to uh, Alpha Flight Support Group. Um, I just want to let everybody know my first exposure to Alpha Flight, I, I'm almost certain it was on like a circular rack at a drugstore or a, or a grocery store when I was a kid, when comics were still sort of exotic and I was reading like Richie Rich and stuff like that. And there were all these other comics. And I remember knowing what Alpha Flight was before, before diving into it, you know, and kind of just knowing that name and thinking it sounded mysterious and cool. Uh, and my name is Michael, and my first exposure to Alpha Flight was also on one of those turnstile racks at the grocery store. And like all gay men, of course, I was instantly drawn to the gayest character in all of comics, Snowbird. Yeah, that costume is very gay. I'm sorry. Sorry, North Star, get out of the way. I mean, I think I was always into cartoons and drawings. And so anytime a comic book was in the vicinity, I was like looking at it. But I don't think I had this obsession with the lore and the storylines and that kind of stuff until roughly around the time I started reading like the G.I. Joe comic had a, had a continuity to it. And this was around like the, I guess the early eighties, um, 1983, 1984, somewhere in there. And then the X-Men was the next comic I probably got super into. So those two were my big, like, I can't wait to see what happens next in this soap opera. And then I kind of discovered that Alpha Flight was sort of ancillary to that, even though the connection was in the past of, of me picking it up. It's like, I, I, I just knew a little bit more about comics. And also I think that John Byrne's art was always really attractive to me. So I remember picking up Alpha Flight somewhere in those early days, but originally it was, it was G.I. Joe and X-Men. And it was the kind of, you know, again, the difference between reading about Richie Rich's latest self-contained adventure that at most was like a two-parter within the same issue, you know? Yeah. Um, then going to this thing that had this deep, deep 
like like watching a soap opera that had been on for 40 years. In fact, that's exactly what it is. So I don't know, uh, like, what was your diving in point and what were the comics that got you into comics? Uh, I also was really into the X-Men was my first foray into comic books that I sought out because my older brother was sort of into comics. He was more into DC. So I remember he had this like big milk crate full of old comics, mostly like late 70s, like Justice League and, and some some other kind of random DC titles. And I remember flipping through them, but I was like super not allowed to touch them. It was like very off limits. So, you know, he, I, I don't know. I think he didn't actually care about comics. I think he just thought they'd be worth money one day or something. They were, none of them was worth anything. I have all of them now. Right. <laughs> and uh, so then when I remember when I would like go to the grocery store, I would see these X-Men comics and they were starting to do those X-Men classics reprints of, you know, some of the more popular, like Chris Claremont stories from the seventies and stuff. So I was starting to get into some of the like more classic stories, like dark Phoenix saga and things like that. Cause they were reprinting them. And yeah. And it was like, I just love that. It was like a serial thing that, you know, it was like, Oh wow. So this is number 71. I got to get number 72. And, you know, I was like really interested in where these stories went. And more than anything, I was just really interested in the characters because they were also, you know, the the X-Men and mutants in general are full of like these really amazing, powerful women, which was not something that I was used to in most of the other science fiction or fiction that I took in in the 80s when I was a kid, because it was very much like guys and guns and bra and you know and i was like i didn't really relate to all of that so i wanted like a really cool powerful chick i wanted like a storm or a kitty pride or a jean gray and so it was very cool to get to experience those through comics in a ways that it feels like i wasn't getting in other media well there's so much to pick up about what you just said and i guess we could relate it to alpha flight but we can definitely relate it to the x-men and maybe chris claremont's writing i think chris claremont was was trying to do things with with just female superheroes that were like um i mean they're still wearing like tiny outfits a lot of the time but there's there's a little bit more um like you said of the like the power of the situation tilts their way a lot yeah there's also just something about like misfits in general i think the x-men are the ultimate misfits and I think that like Alpha Flight, even though they're like a government team, they um they have a misfit quality to them too. Just when you see the image of them, there's 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 like a a, a big orange furry guy. There's this kind of as you mentioned, Snowbird. This kind of uh, like an ancient spirit, but is also kind of in the body of a modern woman. But she's not quite human, but she is. And then there's a woman who's like a sort of a a marine creature that has taken on human form. And then there's uh, uh, a acrobat who is, you know, like basically that's all he is in the beginning. And then later they do a lot of mystical shit with him that becomes like, it's like you start off with representation of a little person and you end up with some crazy mystical thing that I think is probably offensive uh, <laughs> to say that his size is due to some curse that he has to have lifted. I don't know if you, yeah. if you stayed with Puck through that. Um, so I don't know. I think the team has this kind of look about them that was intriguing. Like I think about my first glance of that title, X-Men, and the way how weird those characters looked to me and how appealing that was and intriguing that was. And then to find out it wasn't so weird that it should scare me off at 10 or 11. It was more intriguing and interesting. And yeah, that it was a storyline of characters with real feelings that you could track. And I think Alpha Flight, again, I don't think it ever lifted off in that sense. Boy, that sounded like a flight pun. I, I didn't mean <laughs> uh -huh, it. Ah, I saw what you did there. Um, <laughs> let's just say it never spread its wings. <laughs> the team was created, and John Byrne has even said that they basically were given just enough character to be good like foils for the X-Men in a couple of issues. They represent the Canadian government trying to get Wolverine back because like they've changed Wolverine's story so much. I don't know what part of his origin now is the Weapon X program, but at the time it was that the Canadian government had been instrumental and perhaps had put the adamantium into Wolverine, like that they right. were like invested in him. His healing power was his mutant power, but the, the metal skeleton and metal claws was, was government property. Right. And so they were trying to basically reclaim him. And then over the course of another appearance in the X-Men, Alpha Flight kind of stopped being foils for the X-Men and became, like at the end of that storyline, sort of shaking hands with Wolverine saying, and I think that was issue 140 of the X-Men, where it's like, we're, the government's no longer going to be after you. We're not sending Alpha Flight to try to catch Wolverine. And then at that point, they 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 were popular enough to, to warrant their, their own book. Um, but anyway, I just think that look at them, when you see them standing there, they have that quality of the X-Men of just a bunch of, they all look very different and their stories all feel very different.
So it's interesting to even talk about them as characters because the guy who created them or co-created them, John Byrne, has said they only had enough character to be, you know, a one-off villain or something almost for the for the for the yeah. X Men. In fact, it's one of those things where if you like Alpha Flight and you hear John Byrne talk about it, it'll make you sad because he kind of views it as something that just never never really came together. But I don't know if you those first like twelve or so issues of Alpha Flight really are spent really trying to do that exact thing, trying to put meat on the bones of who these people are. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's funny too, because, you know, it's a great uh, lesson in sort of team building because, you know, Alpha Flight, the original lineup does that very well, where it's like, okay, you have to have all your bases cover and you have to have like all these different um, character arc or character traits within the team. You have to have like these, you know, different levels of of energy and these different types of characters to to sort of make it feel like a really full, you know, fully thought out, robust team where you're like, oh, you have all the bases covered. You've got your comic relief and you've got your very serious and you've got your mysticism and you've got your technology and you've got your strength and you've got your brains. And so I always liked that about Alpha Flight was it was like, oh, it's a really well thought out team, you know, which of course makes sense that they were just trying to make a team that would be a good foil to the X-Men. So of course it is. But yeah, I mean, that was the thing I always liked about it. It was like, it was very inspirational to me and it made me like want to come up with my own ideas and my own characters and pick characters from all these different teams and put them together and see how you could make like this really kind of like great team that could stand toe to toe with anybody else. And I just think, you know, honestly, the look of them was so strong. They had such a strong, you know, their costumes and everything. It was so of that era because it was like 79, 80. When they first showed up in X-Men, yeah, it would have been, in fact, I'll just look on this. There's a year I have to put my readers on. <laughs> if you can remember the first Alpha Flight, put your readers on. <laughs> 79 um, was when they were, the team popped up in X-Men. I think it was like a, a 10 or so issues back that Guardian uh, showed up for the first time and it was just him. And there was, I think, mention of the Alpha Flight team, but then they, they again, this was, you know, 79 was when they'd said, we need to create enough characters to say, this is kind of a team that can kind of meet this, like you said, almost a one-to-one ratio of the X-Men. Yeah. Wolverine Wolverine and Puck. Right. And Snowbird is definitely the storm analog. She can do the exact same thing, whip up a snowstorm and yeah, yeah. create some cover. So she can also turn into an owl, so watch out. <laughs> or like a, um, she turned into a white Wolverine one yeah. time. She turned into a white version of the character Sasquatch one yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. I love that idea that it's just like, oh, any animal, but only if it's Canadian. <laughs> you feel them trying to build this mythology and this lore around these characters. Yeah. Again, once you start basing the story on them, they can no longer be stooges, essentially, for the right. for the government. But yeah. even from the beginning, there was an element of this. these are former friends of Wolverines, and there was always this tantalizing prospect of getting to see... Um, you know, more stories from that era or even him, you know, potentially jumping from from the X-Men to Alpha Flight. And there were a few crossovers, but they never did much with that. My big nerd dream would be uh, that now that they are talking about bringing the X-Men and all those related characters into the MCU, um, that they would, for the movies, they would maybe start with Alpha Flight or the Weapon X program and, and give us a young Wolverine who's part of that team and then see him maybe fight alongside Alpha Flight and break away from them. Uh, and look for other mutants such as himself, you know, because that would be a way to give them what I'm pretty sure they want, which is a young Wolverine that can be in a hundred more movies, but also something that doesn't feel at all like the the version of the X-Men story that we got in that uh, total mess uh, of of what the Fox X-Men movies became. Yeah, and also that's a cool way to bring in mutants as well that like, of course, the world would not know about mutants if the government was using mutants as weapons and using them to test these crazy surgeries on and enhancements and doing this with the Weapon X program and everything like that is a yeah. very interesting way to think about why mutants because you know the question at this point remains like well then where have they been the whole time where where why haven't there been mutants why weren't they there when Thanos came all these things and it's like well if the government is using them clandestinely, you know, then of course they would keep that hidden from everyone and they would not want everybody to know about that. So yeah, I think that the Weapon X program or the Weapons Plus program or whatever they're going to call it with the Alpha Flight tie-in, that's actually a, is a very interesting sort of toe in to mutants that could sort of crack it wide open. I guess we can talk about the individual people 
a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I know you mentioned a couple right up front, Snowbird, who we've talked about. Uh, we've talked about Puck a little bit. Well, I'd probably lose my gay card if I didn't mention North Star first. Uh, <laughs> the, the, you know, I couldn't be prouder if I was Canadian myself. But yes, North Star, of course, one of the first openly gay characters in Marvel, uh, married to his partner and, you know, famous for being gay and also possibly a fairy. So that's kind of not great. Well, the fairy thing is interesting. <laughs> uh, you know, but I think in general, there are things with North Star's character that are worth investigating. Like the original idea of him was that he would be gay, like when John Byrne came up with him, but he was not allowed to have an openly gay character in the comics in 1983. And so he just included the occasional nod to it. And, and you know, you can find little references to it in North Star's existence, but there aren't many. Yeah. And, and more so what you get is just the sense that North Star is, you know, his characterization is as kind of the, the shifty asshole who doesn't really want to be on the team. Yeah. And he's kind of snarky. I don't know. I was just wondering if hand in hand with that uh, idea of representation with North Star, yeah. do, do we get a little bit of negative stereotyping as well? I don't know. You know, it's hard to say because, you know, at the time, it's like any inclusion is would have been the height of the visibility of the moment, you know, and like visibility right. is so important. And, you know, it's the same thing like, you know, uh, you know, I always say we're sort of in the black exploitation era of gay civil rights, which is where it's very acceptable to be gay in a lot of ways if it's a caricature of itself. You know, if it's like it's fierce mama and it's it's death drops in the house down boots and everything. And, you know, th that is not how most gay people are, but that's like the palatable way that it's like acceptable to be gay. So even at the time, it's like. It, you know, it's hard to say what is or isn't better because just having a gay character is like, was mind blowing at the time. So to think about like, oh, but what's the best representation? It's like, oh, we were so far removed from those ideas, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's like, what's better, a, a gay character who doesn't read as gay because that's playing into stereotypes or a character who is unabashedly gay because he's not concerned with people's, you know, uh, feelings about his sexuality. So, you know, what's better? I don't know. It's hard to say, you know. He is also one of the more powerful characters. Yeah. And if you look at him as a character with a backstory, he has this backstory of, he was with like a, a terrorist group. He was an activist who was sort of, and eventually he had to sort of clear his name and all this stuff. So he wasn't as anti-government as it seemed, but there's like a subversive political aspect to his character. Yeah, very much. That, um, you know, again, gets into Canadian politics. But I always liked the the character idea of North Star and Aurora together being like, a, you know, a, a dual character and their powers were stronger when they were together and they had complementary abilities, but different character traits and different personalities. I always thought that was very interesting too, because that wasn't something we saw a lot. Because in comics, if there was twins, it was usually like, they were twins and they did everything the same and they kind of mirror each other and played off of each other and they were not that. And I thought that was, I always thought that that was also very cool. And again, you know, so such strong character designs. I mean, those costumes are like very, very strong and, and iconic and, you know, they're, very, you know, very, very well done. It would stand now, even, you know, just change the roll top boots and that could be a, a, a new character that gets developed right now. So let's take a minute and talk about the relationship between the twins, whose real names are... Oh, you know, he's Jean-Paul. Yes. And she is Jean-Marie. Jean, 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 but spelled with two N's. Right. So I don't know how that's pronounced, you know, in the era before cartoons, you know, like it was always... John, you know, I guess, but Jean-Paul and Jean-Marie Bobier. So Jean-Paul and Jean-Marie, um, they were, you're right, they weren't quite mirror images of each other. They each had their own thing going on. And if and if we kind of now know that John Byrne thought of, of North Star as, as gay, but sort of in the closet uh, due to editorial rules at Marvel, they didn't refrain from sexualizing his sister at all. For instance, Aurora and Walter Langowski have like a sexual relationship uh, for a few issues there. And it's a very like sexy, it's it's all based on the fact that when Aurora's, we're get, these characters are also twisted, when Aurora's got uh, two personalities at least, and one of her personalities is a very carefree spirit, and one of them is a very buttoned down school marm type. And Walter Langowski has a relationship with the free spirit one. 
And so that causes real problems. And again, gets into some weird areas when it comes down to like, which version of her is he with and whatever. But there's moments in there where I'm like, okay, this is presented like, oh, they're banging. Like this is not presented. There's no two ways about this. And just in case listeners don't know, Walter Langowski, aka Sasquatch, was a former football player turned scientist (laughs) who, who was involved in like a gamma accident that also had like a mystical spirit that, you know, this is out in the tundra of Canada where, where his origin story, but it's kind of a Hulk meets Canadian mysticism yeah, story. Yeah. Um, but uh, th- he's trying to help her control her powers because controlling her powers would seem to be maybe part of controlling her personalities. She, she kind of wants to put away the restrictive schoolmarm personality. At least that's the way I recall that story unfolding. Sure. And then they do some, they do some experiment that, that reduces her power set for a while. You know, like it's, they're constantly doing that kind of thing where, oh, your powers don't work the way they did just a couple issues ago. Right. So there's almost like a constant flux, almost like they were looking for What's the perfect form of this team? Yeah, it's like now, oh, you're guardian, but now you're vindicator, but now you're guardian again. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was so like, it, it was really hard to latch onto anything in Alpha Flight because it really was sort of, it was never running at like such a clip that you could really like jump in and be like, oh, great, I, I can go back and, and read the things that I missed. You know, it was very, to me, it felt like a very kind of fair weather comic because it's like, okay, well, if you, if you're like up to date with who the current lineup is, it's like, you're pretty much up to date with what's happened recently. Cause it felt like it was just like, oh, they'll show up in some other comic. And then you'll be like, oh, whoever's on, oh, Union Jack is on the team. Great. You know, or whatever, <laughs> you know, and then, and then try to figure out how that all happened. But yeah, I mean, there, there really isn't even like a story arc that like really pops out with me. You know, it's always like the strength of the characters, but in their relation to other comics almost. And it's weird too, because I think, you know, Alpha Flight was, I don't think most fans of popular sort of media consumption of superheroes, like people who liked X-Men from like the animated series, probably would have never known who Alpha Flight was until they showed up in that one episode of right. X-Men the animated series. You know, and I always wonder, I'm like, I wonder if that made any Alpha Flight fans. I wonder if anybody like <laughs> got on board with them then. Because, you know, when Northstar joined the X-Men, I think that was when he became much more popular was when he, you know, went up, I guess, to the big leagues. You know, if you think about it, you know, he kind of right. like, he he got his success by leaving Alpha Flight. You know, that's how he got famous, you know, and, and his marriage and everything. You know, like that was like a really big deal in the comics too at the time. But you're right. That happened in an X-Men con- like yeah. the, It made big headlines. It was one of those comic stories that CNN talked about where yeah. it's a, you know, a, a, a gay marriage in a, in a comic book, but it was an X-Men It was series, the X-Men. It a, wasn't even not an was, Alpha Flight. Yeah, exactly. Flight. He had to leave Alpha Flight to get popularity, which I guess maybe trailed back to Alpha Flight. You know, I'm assuming that it, you know... I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I don't even know what the publication history was. I don't even know if they, you know, were running Alpha Flight at that time. I don't even know if Alpha Flight was was in print. Well, North Star's wedding is in issue fifty one of Astonishing X Men, which came out in two thousand twelve, um, and I think there was an Alpha Flight comic running around that time, but. I don't know who was in the book. I think it was actually something close to the classic team minus North Star, maybe. But um, I don't know that anybody really remembers it that well. I never think much about the team, how they popped up around that time. But I wasn't really reading comics during those days. And in fact, the only part of Alpha Flight's legacy and lore that I'm that familiar with is the first 28 or so issues, uh, maybe 30. I I read a little bit past John Byrne's run, but I didn't stay with it forever. And then I dipped back in at different points. But I think the John Byrne stuff is what really makes me nostalgic for this comic enough to do a podcast about it, (laughs) which is to say that like when I was getting into comics, John Byrne's name was one of the first ones I read that I was like, oh, I need to remember this name because I like something about this comic appealed to me. Oh, it was this guy's art. I can see that I like his art across different comics. And, uh, you know, George Perez was another one. But um, I don't know. I think that that Marvel thing of setting it in the real world sort of worked on me too. I liked that it was Canada. I liked that it was rounding out my picture of Canada. At that point, I loved SCTV and Bob and Doug McKenzie. um, And, uh, you know, so having this other thing that was like proof that Canada existed, oh, they have superheroes too, in addition to just really funny people. 
I think that sort of, if there's such a thing as Canadian exoticism, I think that was a factor for me um, in my in my young days of, of of being drawn to this book. Yeah, and part of why I am, you know, why I still have affection for it now. Yeah, and it also like it felt very of the era that it was. You know, it wasn't like, you know, there was like there was all this heightened science in Marvel comics and everything, but it didn't feel like it was taking place in the future. You know, it felt like it was, you know, just a, you know, just slightly into the future. So it did, it felt like it was very like of the era as well. So I, yeah, I always felt it was very like the whole world of X-Men comics and, and mutants and comics in general. It like, it felt so tangible, you know, it felt real, you know? So it was like, you wanted to know like, okay, so this is happening here. Well, what's happening there? You know, and that's why I loved like Excalibur. And that was why I love these other comics where it's like, okay, well, if this is happening here, then it stands to reason that in other countries and in other parts of the world, there are other completely different characters who are going through similar things and that we haven't mined yet, that we can just go there and we can be like, okay, well then let's see who they are and, and what they're all about and learn everything about them as well. And, you know, it was just such a rich world, you know, that felt it felt plausible, you know, even though it all, everything takes place like so outside of the realm of reality, it felt like it could happen because you're like, okay, well, sure. It, it, it um, justifies and sort of validates itself, you know, so I, I believe that it happened. So I, I will believe everything that happens in it. You mentioned Excalibur, um, that Excalibur, whatever that run is on Excalibur, where it's like written by Chris Claremont and drawn by uh, Alan Davis. Um, I loved that stuff. And I loved how yeah. it was a totally different feel from the other X books, you know? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm such a fan of Excalibur and I'm such a fan of, of Captain Britain, you know? I mean, like, I'm always that guy who's like, um, let's not, let us not forget uh, Captain Britain. And people are like, oh, yeah. shut up, you know? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I thought that, again, you know, it's like a, a, such a great lesson in team building. You're like, what, what a great team that I would put up against any other team that, mm-hmm. which I don't think you see very much anymore. It's like, I feel like most of the more recent, well, not the most recent, but some of the past few years of comics, especially like X-Men comics, I'm like, what is this team? Like, what is this? <laughs> like, yeah. like, what, who, like, I don't understand. I agree. And it's such an odd thing to say, because when I started reading the X-Men, it was around issue 176 or 177. And so there had obviously been a lot of continuity already, but the central soap opera of the book was still something you were able to tap into and kind of hop on and understand what the emotional life of these characters was meant to be. Yeah. Um, like, when I jumped on, it was 40 issues and several years after the death of Jean Grey. And that still hung over the group of characters like this tragic history, and it, it marked the team. Yeah. And I don't know that nowadays those sort of things are are allowed to land and resonate. I don't know in the current permutations, all the different books, you know, what the big event is that feels like the the death of Jean Grey did when I started reading. Now, that's a funny thing to say, because they've undone her death so many times um, that it seems ridiculous to mention it. But when I was reading, it was a death that stuck or had stuck so far. And it felt big. Yeah, it felt stuck, stuck for a really long time, yeah. But Alpha Flight has a sort of big death early on too that felt like it was one that stuck. At least they tried to make it stick. I honestly don't know what the current standard of, like James McDonald Hudson, I believe has probably come back as a clone and a robot and his own self from another dimension and all this stuff. The suit had been on him so long that now the suit is sentient and thinks it's him. And in fact, in issue 25, they they bring him back, but it's a, it's a ruse. But the story he gives about how he was brought back in that, in that comic, I think has been adhered to in later continuity. Like they've said that some of that stuff really happened. It was actually kind of a cool story because it's like he ends up the, the, the explosion that seemed to take his life actually caused him to teleport to like this, like a, 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 I think it's a moon of um, Jupiter. And he's like in a lake, in a moon and Jupiter and these weird lake creatures that live there, like befriend him and help him. But they're, sure. they're so alien and it's like a little kooky sci-fi story 
thrown into the middle of a comic, but they rebuild him with the components of his suit. Yeah. You know, it's like, and, and they send him back. Well, we later find out that's not really him. Um, but it's like, I liked that way, that crazy ass way of bringing him back so much when I was a kid and I read that comic yeah. that I was like, oh, I'm a little bummed that they turned, this turned out to be a story about not him. And now I think, and again, I don't know this, I'd have to do more digging, but I think they've then gone back and said that actually did happen to him. And he is back now. But anyway, it seems like it doesn't really, it's like we said, none of this stuff matters because people have died and come back so much. But the basic point being that was a death that seemed like it stuck for a for a little while, you know, like, and it actually felt like it, de it defined the team almost in a calculated way to say, okay, I've spent 12 issues putting origin stories in the back of these issues and like getting these characters from a sketch to a real team of characters. Now I'm going to do something that shakes it up. And, you know, we didn't really get a lot of great stories of, of James Hudson as guardian or vindicator. It was like, you know, just a few little glimpses before he, dies and he dies in a like his suit is malfunctioning and he it explodes because he's distracted by his wife coming in to check on him yeah and so it's got this like real shouldn't have happened kind of fuck up like the hero's about to rewire his suit so that it doesn't blow up but then he's distracted and then it has his suit big, blows up big caught looking at porn energy <laughs> yes i also love the super science of comic books where he can wear the most skin tight spandex outfit and they're like oh it's a an advanced suit of armor you're like okay cool i love that i love advanced suits of armor that are as as tight as any fabric could ever possibly be I love that the movies have just decided we're not going to do that, but some people will never look as cool in, in real life because they can't yeah. look like that streamlined. Like these this, these suits we're talking about that look so great on the page, I don't know how you'd make... I mean, I think you could do a cool-looking Guardian suit in, sure. in life, but it wouldn't have the same effect that the comic has of this, as you yeah. said, this like perfectly built man <laughs> who is like, you know, wearing this skin-tight suit that somehow contains all the technology in the world. I mean, after all of the Spider-Man movies that we've seen, I feel like we have moved closer. You know, it's like we started so far from what it was on the page that now we're like, we've, we've swung way back where we're, we're much closer to what it is on the page. But I think like people have like a very <laughs> negative opinion of like the idea of like spandex costume. Right. So it's like, oh, it has to be some like super athletic something or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but wrestlers wear spandex and nobody thinks it's weird so right. you know but go figure but i have to say another thing about the death sticking i think it's very interesting to think about though since there was a lot less alpha flight comics and than there have been x-men comics right there you know you have to pay so much more you have to adhere so much tighter to the lore because there's so much less of it you know it's very interesting to think that like you're like, they're like, well, why did this happen? And you're like, oh, it was this, where everything in X-Men has been retconned and retconned and retconned. You know, it's like, you know, with, with you know, Jean, everybody jokes like, oh, well, which time did she die? Because she died. And then she kind of came back, but not really. And then she was the white phoenix of the crown, but she was still dead. And then, oh, the whole time she was in the white hot room or whatever. So, you know, it's so interesting to think that like, you know, we're, we have these comics now where if you have these characters come in, they're, you're paying homage to these like wacky things that happened in the 70s and 80s, where if it was the X-Men, all of that would have been retconned, you know, in the past 15 years so that it would make more quote unquote modern sense, you know, for, right. for comics because people are like, oh, we don't like all this ridiculousness now. We try to make it a little bit more based in some sort of reality that we're creating that is a little bit more... I don't know, a little cooler, I guess, you know, not, not quite so weird and wacky, but it's like, no, if you're talking about shaman and snowbird and everything, it's like, no, there's, the, there's a very finite level of, um, of lore about them and history about them. And that's what it is that if you're going to be canon, you have to be canon. Right. Well, I mean, and I'm sure that those things have added, had added wrinkles that I don't know off the top of my head. I really think Puck's origin was the one yeah. that became the most twisted. Also, I have to say real quick, you know, this team does have big gay energy. I mean, like it pretty much every character on this team has, is some sort of like gay archetype and Puck is, is big, like pocket daddy, pocket bear energy. Like he, I, I can imagine like, gay people gay men especially being very drawn to like the short stocky muscular hairy guy whose power is flipping basically okay let's think about the fact that john byrne was like the guy who kind of he didn't create wolverine but he popularized the version of yeah. wolverine that we love yeah and wolverine is a stocky hairy man mm -hmm. who in the best renderings of wolverine from that era 
which probably are the ones drawn by John Byrne and Inc. by Terry Austin that are in the X-Men, mm. each each body hair is lovingly rendered. Oh, yes. And 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 Puck is the same way. Like there's it's 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 almost it's shocking how glorious his 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 body hair is. Yeah. He's he's a bear. Right. And Wolverine's like a medium-sized bear. Yeah, he's just like he's yeah, Wolverine's his own type. What what is Sasquatch? Well, Sasquatch is like full bear. Like he's full like I mean, nobody has that much hair, but they wish. But he's one of he's one of those jock guys who's got like dumb Labrador energy kind of, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. Whereas whereas Puck and Wolverine don't really have that. But I think it's no. interesting how Puck is sort of an analog like okay, I don't have Wolverine on this team, but I'll make another diminutive character who who could get around physically and is really tough. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. You know, and it's you know, I think especially of that era of comic book writing, early 80s, it's like you have to think, I think everybody was trying to figure out the next new like ripple for a character, the next new little character arc that would make them as interesting as a Wolverine or as interesting as like a Jean Grey or whatever, you know, where it's like, oh, well, if we can just put this little twist on the character, this little bit of backstory or whatever, maybe that will make them latch on, people will latch on to them or whatever. And with Puck, they just kind of missed the mark in an odd way. Like initially he's conceived as just a superhero who happens to be of small stature, but then they they go on to add that element that his dwarfism was some kind of a curse. And it 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 definitely takes it out of the range of representation into something kind of wrongheaded or unsavory. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to say, because of course, I don't think that's something that would fly now with people saying like, oh, he was cursed to be slightly shorter than a just kind of short guy. And you know, I don't think that's the thing that would fly now. Well, it's kind of like we've been saying, a lot of things from comics of this era would not fly now as much as we might love them. Um, if you don't mind jumping over to the side topic of uh, rampant misogyny, I am... Um, was reading a Marvel team-up story recently that had Spider-Man teaming up with the Wasp. And, you know, and the Wasp is a really powerful character and has a really cool set of powers, especially when you put her in the room with Spider-Man. They seem like they'd be a good team. But uh, Peter Parker is, like, constantly calling her little lady and kind of talking down to her about maybe staying away from the danger. And the point of the story wasn't even that Peter was being regressive, you know. So at least maybe we've moved on from there. I don't know. I mean, unfortunately, every TikTok and reel I watch makes me think that, like, we're still there because it's just all like, ladies, don't you hate it when you're making your man's lunch and this happens? And I'm like, what are straight people? I'm sorry, what is straight culture? <laughs> that It's these men who are adults and can't make lunch and women who have to spend their entire lives making lunch for some dude who's a child. So yeah, I, very, very strange. But talking about powerful women, I mean, it makes me think like we should probably talk about Snowbird. I'm just saying. We have to. We have to. Just as soon as I show off by making you a sandwich. She's one of actually two or three characters in that initial team who sort of have a beast within that could take over, yeah. you know, like, whereas we had that with Wolverine, we had that with Phoenix, we've had that with different characters where that's like, there's something about them that makes them formidable that also makes them a danger. And she's definitely one of those characters who's all like, and again, constantly one thing or the other, her magic is making her die and wither away. Her magic is making her crazy and strong. Yeah. And she can turn into a white Wolverine or a white Sasquatch or yeah. a white owl. Talk to me about Snowbird and why you love her so. Uh, it's the look, you know, it's the, it's the look for me. You know, it's like, you, I think really like you, you nailed it on the head where they were trying to recapture the magic of a storm character. And how do you do that? You know, so they were like, well, what is it that people like about storm? Is it the majesty? Okay. Let's go with character that is all majesty and sort of goddess, you know, energy. And she really had that, you know, it, she, she just didn't have the, I think the reason she will never be as popular as a storm is storm has like this huge warmth to her. You know, she has like a, a leader instinct, a mother instinct to her where she just wants to protect and be sort of the person who, Oh, let me do it. I'll, I'll, I'll handle this for everybody. And snowbird was, well, puns aside was kind of cold. You know, she was, not, she didn't really seem like she was, was that. Um, but yeah, I just love that. It was like, I didn't quite understand like the breadth of her powers. I was like, I really, I really didn't understand like what the limits were, but I liked that it was sort of like, she was this deity kind of character, you know, that she was sort of like, Oh, she can do She can, she has plot armor and she has, you know, the power of being uh, a fictional character, which is a great thing when, you know, a character in a comic book has the power of, hey, if I need her to have this power, I will make it work in the in the confines of this story. I will make it work. 
but I love that her power is is tied to Canada, that her power is tied to being in the North and that it is, you know, she has that weird, you know, it's like in DC, they call it the, the red, you know, where it's like all of the animals where it's like, there's some global consciousness of a planet where, oh, when you're on that planet, mm-hmm. all of the animals are involved in this sort of energy of that planet where you can tap into that, but it's specific to whatever world you're on. And I like that she has that, but for Canada, it's like, oh, I can become whatever animal as long as it's native to my homeland of the, of the North. Um, but yeah, she's just an amazing look, really cool. I, I love the costume. Uh, I just love the sort of idea of her. And uh, yeah, really, just another really, really strong standout character design that anybody would look at and go, Ooh, who is that? What do you do? What, what are you all about? She's also in the issue of Snowblind. This is the comic that, because it takes, it's her fighting like a, some kind of winter monster spirit in the tundra in a snowstorm. And so there's about seven pages. I love that. Just all white. Just white with, with bubbles. and. Brilliant. I mean, again, that's the kind of move that, if you look at John Byrne's comics, like there's an issue of Fantastic Four where like, it's horizontal, you know, and you open it up and it's like big pages as you flip through it. And then there's like a Hulk story he did where it's like all one, like it's all splash pages, you know? So, I mean, like, I think John Byrne was an artist who really did try to play with the format and any other writer or artist, I would say, um, seven pages of white is, is a cheap shot. And like, you're trying to get out, maybe, maybe he was under deadline, but I also think it's inventive to say like, okay, we've earned, we've had this kind of really lush art for this series. Let's do that. Let's have seven pages out of 20 or however many in this story that are like, let's really test that limit of the, even the readers who are ready to, to say this is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like anything that kind of makes an issue stand out. I appreciate that thinking. That's almost like Stan Lee kind of thinking to be like, what can we, how can we say this is the strangest issue ever? Like, how yeah. can we say this is the something you've never seen before? You know, even if what you're seeing and this one is less than you've ever seen before. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and and just also a very cool way to you know express a, a thing that would be specific to her. You know, specific to like oh, only because she has these powers that are tied to the the tundra and the icy snow, and she's fighting the snow monster. Can there be? these panels where it's all just black out, but you know, all just white out, you know, that's like a really cool idea and like way to like, if you, if you are going to be a fan of that character and of that book, that's something that will stand out. It's like, well, they, they're this, she's the only one who could do that. That's the only time that this would really make sense. And, you know, it's a great thing to do and, and a great way to build a potential fan base. And I would imagine of the people on Alpha Flight, I would imagine Snowbird does have a lot of standalone fans. I would I would think anyway. Yeah, I don't know if I have much of a sense of that with any of the Alpha Flight members, but I do know that her powers and her story are are among the most open-ended of the of the Alpha Flight characters because there's so much mystery to them. And the other character you might say that about is um Shaman. Uh, AKA Michael Two Youngman, who also has the kind of mystical element to his powers. And, you know, less so with Snowbird, even though she's connected to like Inuit mythology, but definitely with uh, Michael Two Youngman, a uh, shaman. I always wondered if, though I think he's a very cool character. Yeah. Um, and when I was younger, I think I thought it was really cool that he was he was an indigenous person who was a superhero. But I wonder if connecting him to sort of ancient and magical energies is not uh, a cliche. Sure. Um, you know, you hear about that. It's one of those. It's not like necessarily a negative stereotype, but it is a stereotype to say, oh, this First Nations individual, um, you know, knows something that we in the modern world don't remember about about magic and mystical energy that can be seen as you know, a compliment and also kind of a box that you're putting that character in. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I can judge where the line is. I I, I mean, everything I remember of Shaman was of him as an indigenous person. And I don't think any of it seemed very exploitative, you know, or, you know, too stereotypical. I mean, his name is Shaman, so that's not like super, you know, whatever. But at the same time, it's like, Snowbird felt like a little removed from that, how it was a little bit more of like a sort of a fairy tale angle on that, sort of like, oh, the embodiment of this sort of idea of this 
you yes. know, ancient thing. So, you know, it's hard to say, but, you know, I'm also, I'm not an indigenous person, so it's not for me to say if it is, uh, you know, exploitative or not. We haven't really said much about Marina. I don't mm-hmm. know if I have much to say about Marina. Um, she has this weird origin where she's some kind of elemental being that came to earth and became human because the humans were the first, like she hatched out of an egg and humans took care of her. And so she sort of mutated into a human, uh, but she doesn't really look human. And then Namor, the uh, submariner, wants to um, wants her to be his queen. And I don't know. I feel like she kind of. I'm sure she comes back later in full force. But it always seemed like she was a member of the team that they they put on the team, and they kind of quickly put her off on her own storyline where she was out there. And she and she was yet another character who had sort of an animal side that could could take over. Yeah. Um, and she didn't know her own history. Boy, they, they love that, that don't know my own history. I've got an animal side that can take over. That's a real, that's like a, you know, a standby. Yeah, absolutely. And they especially love to giving that to women where it's like, oh, who knows uh, what, which woman you're going to get today. Is she the woman who possibly is a love interest or is she the woman that is going to possibly rip your head off? Because those are the two types of women, apparently, that were being written about in the in the early 80s for comics. Yeah, I love that she's like named Marita, like basically, except she's um, she looks like a full fish. Like name Marita yeah. is just like the most beautiful white woman on Earth who just happens to also be from the deep sea. And then they were like, and Marina is literally just a fish face. <laughs> like she, she is, is uh, she's not pretty, she's not, definitely not a looker. But Prince Namor is like all about it. Yeah. Like in those, in those early alpha fight yeah. issues anyway, he uh, really wants her to be his queen. And then it's like, and it, it, I don't know where he was in his arc. I know he's been like an antagonist and a hero at different times, but right. it feels like that was a way to get him into the sort of Alpha Flight lore and kind of connect Alpha Flight to something that was part of the classic Marvel universe. You know, there's really not much in the Alpha Flight issues, those early ones, that places them in the the typical Marvel setup. Like it feels yeah. like they're off in Canada doing their own thing, but having Namor come in there feels like a you know it, it it's a way to do that without having them like meeting up with the Avengers or or something like that, which I really don't know. Right. I mean, I'm sure they do later, but in that those early days, it's almost like they were very pointedly trying to let them create their own world as opposed to beefing up the comic with like having Spider-Man come to Canada or having, you know, Thor. Although he is on the cover. He is on the cover yeah. of like the first issue, I think, where he's like, it's like him and Cyclops like, wow, who are these exciting new heroes? I hope we learn about their adventures once a month, every month. Yeah, this is such like a cliche and kind of a silly comic book thing. But here's a the the cover of Alpha Flight number one. It's the first dynamic double sized issue. Oh, that is the first one. Okay, yeah. Exploding from the pages of the X Men. But yes, the Alpha Flight is walking through, and they're like pushing Spider Man and Cyclops and Captain America, the Fantastic Four, and everybody is getting pushed aside. And they're saying this thing. This just this is such a comic booky thing of that era to have. They're saying one side superheroes. This is a job only we could handle. (laughs) Okay, first of all, wrong, incorrect. There. There is nothing going on here that the Fantastic Four could not take care of with like a few less people. Right. Like, haven't we just explained for an hour that this is a team of motley weirdos who could barely get it together? It barely even comes together as a team, like more than a couple times in the first 10 or 12 issues of their own yeah. book. Like, it's really not a, like, it, it, there's that they don't get they're not hanging out that much together you know yeah. Fantastic Four much better crack unit X Men work better as a team maybe but every issue the X Men have to learn that the lesson is to work better as a team that's sure. the funny thing about the X Men <laughs> yeah 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 every issue ends with them saying guys we were having trouble there but then we started working as a team and we we figured out that's the secret don't forget that next time and everyone's like we won't forget yeah. You know? <laughs> Wasn't there something Cyclops said not to forget? Uh, I know, and then uh, and then we all want to secretly have sex with Jean Grey. That's like that was the whole first uh, fifteen years of the X Men was just like, wow, with this girl here, it sure is hard to concentrate because we all want to have relations with her. Even Professor Xavier did. He was the worst one. She yeah. was his student, and he was like, he's like, oh, I hope she sees me for who I really am, and not just an old man in a wheelchair. Yeah. You're her teacher. That's what she sees you as. You're her authority figure. Yes, there is the Creepsville. 
quotient of almost any of these comics. When you picture like a 40-year-old guy sitting behind a drafting table drawing that and kind of panting, it's a little bit, uh, I don't know, a little bit gross. Well, especially (laughs) because, you know, they didn't do it because they felt that like women needed like representation in comics. They did it because they were like, and also there needs to be some boobies, you know, like guys want to also look at some some boobs while they're at it. Because maybe if they don't like comic books, maybe they like boobs. So, you know, they'll like one or the other where, you know, for me, you know, I think that's why a lot of gay men in my age bracket have such like a weird relationship with how they view women in popular culture and why like, like for instance, drag gets sort of a bad rap because it's like, oh, this is what women have to be, that they have to be the most done up idealized version of a, of a feminine woman at all times, because yeah. we were looking for things to latch onto. And we found women in popular media and especially comics and science fiction who are not being done with like a thoughtful, <laughs> a thoughtful attention to what is and is a good representation of women. It was just what we had. And it was like, oh, well, she's awesome and she's cool and she kicks ass. I mean, the fact that she's wearing high heels and a low cut top is, you know, didn't register to me that that was exploitative. I just thought it was part of the, the thing that made her very cool. You know, the, re- the another thing that I wanted to... <laughs> idolize i guess which is why i'm wearing high heels and a low-cut top right now (laughs) you know i'm just kind of big and hairy right now uh maybe that's because sasquatch was my favorite when i started reading the book anything else you want to say about him by the way before we wrap this up yeah i mean he was like the bruiser of the team he was the tank you know he's like beast without the fun character beat that beast is also like a gentle soul so you know i mean you know, he's, he's, he is what he was, you know, he, and, and also he's a needed member of the team. You need to have the muscle. And he, he definitely was that, but, you know, of course, not as interesting as some of the other characters on the team, but you know, what, what can you say? You can't, everybody can't be Wolverine. Somebody's got to be, you know, whoever. I think that was originally the tagline for Alpha Flight was everybody can't be Wolverine. <laughs> And they were like, but we're going to try, we're going to, we're going to try <laughs> We're going to make them all Canadian. Maybe that's the thing people like about it. Right. And there was an asterisk that said, no, we mean by, by everybody can't be Wolverine. We mean literally nobody on this team is going to become as popular as Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, no. But such cool characters, you know, but such great characters. And like that time in comics is also like very special to me. So I think like they are a great representation of what was going on then in comics. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I still have warm feelings for them too. And having yeah. reread them all, I recognize that yes, my impression was that they really were like, it was sort of the production value of the book almost yes. as much as anything that really attracted me. Um, well, yeah, I hope we, uh, you know, maybe we'll, we'll talk about Excalibur soon because oh, I, I know that. that there's another, this is honestly crazy. I never get to talk about comics because they're such a niche thing. And even when you meet someone that likes them, you don't really want to go too far into it. So I really want to thank you for coming to uh, Alpha Fight Support Group today, Michael. Where can people find you online when you aren't uh, nerding out about Canadian superheroes? You can find me nerding out all over over the internet doing all kinds of nerdy stuff. Um, you can find me at Michael C. Fur with two R's on all forms of social media. You can visit my website, michaelfurr.com. Uh, you can listen to my podcast, Thorp, a podcast for big fans everywhere podcasts are streamed, where me and my fellow gay comedian friend, Jake Lazier, talk about everything nerdy that we happen to be a fan of that week. Awesome. I think you actually did an episode on the X-Men a long time ago, didn't you? Yeah, we had uh, the great drag queen from RuPaul's Drag Race, Dax exclamation point on as a guest to talk about all things X-Men. And it's an episode called No More Wolverine. So you can see how how the conversation went about how we really felt about who should and shouldn't be the most popular X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't really have a sign off for this show, but you're a professional entertainer. So maybe you could help. Hey, Alpha Flight, let's get out of here. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, thanks, Michael. Thank you, John. Alpha Flight. Alpha Flight, the podcast where we we don't edit anything, so it has to be one take. No, right. Exactly. This is all going out live. <laughs> <laughs>